Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Jim and Austin. Is Congress still messing around, or how has the political atmosphere affected the United States military, Jim, over the last, with the change in president? And, well, just going back years, how how does Congress affect the military? Well, until the end of World War II, when for the first time in our history, we maintained a large peacetime army, and we, we, we kept peacetime conscription. It's the first time ever we had peacetime conscription. Conscription was never used uh, during the Revolutionary War, and until the Civil War, it was only introduced, you know, late in the war, and even then it caused big problems, you know, like the Irish rebelling in, in the uh, rioting in New York because, you know, they were subject to the draft, but the, the, the free blacks were not. Uh, that was not, strictly speaking, a racial, you know, uh, you know, uh, rising, as it were, as it was, you know, against the, uh, you know, the unfairness of it all, especially, you know, considering, you know, uh, some American U.S. citizens were not, you know, they were not, you know, uh, uh, subject to the conscription. And that's a problem that's basically affected us ever since, you know, who shall be conscripted? Uh, now, the conscription ended as, as soon as or before the war was over. Um, and uh, rein reinstating it after World War II, not right after World War II. Uh, at first, they demobilized rapidly, you know, from 11 million uh, troops in uniform to, you know, a couple of million. But then the Korean War came along, and suddenly we realized that the, the Cold War wasn't going to be, you know, so hot. Uh, it was going to be hot at times. And uh, remember, the, the, the Cold War... The idea of deterrence against Russia, not going to war with them because people had enough of war, I mean, everywhere. Um, and we didn't find this out until after the Soviet Union collapsed and we got into the archives. The Russians were sick of war as well. That was a contentious issue in Russia, but they kept it a secret. Um, but he realized that peacetime, in extended periods of peacetime, he was a student of history, as was his son. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a, that was a, a, a pattern that showed up again and again. Uh, if you spend a lot of money on the peace on in peacetime, uh, theoretically preparing for war, it rarely ends well. I mean, some of the, for example, some of the, uh, the, the written documents that have come down to us, one was in China, uh, in the, what I would, our middle ages, as it were, where they they had they had stored you know, up to a million crossbows in case there was a war, because they realized that the crossbow uh, could it could be rapidly taught to untrained men, and that gives them a formidable uh, you know weapon against the Mongols or whoever, whoever else was usually northern barbarians coming at them, and they found out that these had been allowed to you know degenerate. They, a lot of them are trash to begin with. And this caused a big uproar. But it was a feature of Chinese history uh, right down to the present. The communists said they would eliminate it, and they did for about a decade. And then, you know, just as it always does, the corruption came back. Uh, that led to the eventually, you know, in the, in the 80s, uh, when Mao was safely dead, um, the, they basically uh, adopted well, what we would uh, describe in modern terms as, you know, German fascism, where they kept the uh, – the police state, but they allowed free enterprise, you know, with some restrictions. They had to basically stay out of politics, and that was Hitler's deal. And Mussolini basically did the same thing. Um, and uh, uh, that, and that's what they're going for, but now they still have to pay attention to public opinion because there's still corruption in the military. There's less than there was, you know, when they started their, their drive to, uh, to uh, eliminate the ancient Chinese curse of corruption in the military in peacetime as well as in the spending. Um, but it's a problem. We never had to face it before until, you know, by the 1950s, we were rearming uh, and we had the conscription again. And there was a lot of money sl uh, sloshing around uh, that Congress could play with because, hey, they had the final say uh, uh, on, you know, what gets spent. 
how much has got, got spent. And because of that, and because they, they approve the senior officers, if you're a general or an admiral, your promotion has to be approved by Congress. Now, normally, that's just a, a you know, up and down vote. Okay, give me the list. Problem. But once they realize they had the power of that, in other words, if some general or admiral displeased them, uh, they could make trouble legally. Um, and that got worse and worse as years went on. Now, I remember I was writing a book with Ray Macedonia on the on the reforms of the military after Vietnam. And we met the then he, he knew the, the then current army chief of staff. And we sat down, we had lunch with him or extended meeting. And he was complaining about Congress, Congress people coming to him, asking him to get the army involved in social programs. And he says, we're, we're a military, not a social welfare program. But, you know, he was right and he was wrong because the, the, the Congress kept coming with their pet projects to the military, which they would never do in wartime. Um, but it was peacetime. And, hey, what's the harm? Um, and now we're seeing a culmination at it with the with the latest you know thing about you know like teaching uh, enhanced diversity the CRT and what have you and all sorts of other stuff. Now I dug into that, and it turns out uh, officially the military says yes, sir, we're doing it, sir. They're not. Uh, it's a nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing uh, where they pretend to do enough to uh, or, or basically do enough press release you know implementation of the program. Uh, without incurring the, the major wrath of Congress. Now, th- there are people in Congress on both parties who are cautioning a lot of times, you know, uh, confidentially, especially the Democrats, that this is killing us, uh, which it is politically. Uh, but the military can, for a while, uh, hold the line, as it were. But at the same time, there are other problems, like the, the zero tolerance for failure. <clears throat> that came in decades ago, and we reported on that several times, the, imp- the, the impact that was having. Uh, and as Alan Lofi pointed out uh, in different pieces he wrote, was that the, uh, during World War II, some of our best commanders were guys who would have been you know, discharged in, in the current peacetime Navy because they made a mistake. When their ship ran aground, they did this, they did that. Uh, they were a bad you know, dinner guest. Um, and uh, that's no longer the last. So we're already losing a lot of uh, uh, good senior commanders. Indeed, a lot of people in the military believe that the senior leadership is totally compromised or largely compromised, except for the Marines. And look at all the bad press, they, all the bad nothing they get from Congress over that. But they hold the line. They're still holding the line. I don't think anybody wants to really, you know, get after them on, on CRT or any of the latest stuff because the Marines will, you know, they'll go down fighting. Um, but the uh, but they still have personally reported on the retention problems they were having, uh, especially after 2008 when the, they had the big budget cuts, you know, because the major fighting in Iraq was over. We were throwing our troops from uh, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. And we decided well, we can cut defense spending. And all of a sudden, we, 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 we experienced the power of the industry lobbyists. I mean, they had weaponized lobbying and political influence uh, in the, you know, in the previous few uh, decades. And they were making a lot of decisions on what gets uh, built and how many uh, against the advice of the military. They had compromised the military control over procurement and quality by basically corrupting the procurement officers. Uh, you know, in other words, any, any guy who was a key procurement officer in charge of a project, he, it was, he let it, they let it be known that a cushy job after retirement was his to be had. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, if he, you know, didn't get in the way. And a lot of them took this. Now, some didn't, and they got bad mouth big time. Um, but basically, what are you going to do? And of course, by the by the 1980s, it was it was common knowledge, uh, more than it had ever been before, that once you promoted promoted the general rank, it was more political than military. Uh, and this is something that was had been going on, you know, uh, F, between World War One and World War Two, and one of General Marshall's major positive moves was to, I think, he he basically retired, forcibly retired, dozens of senior generals. And people like Patton, who were already known as, you know, bad people to invite to a dinner party, uh, 
these mad dogs, as it were, were basically rapidly promoted. Now, some of them were not mad dogs. Some of them were guys who were just, you know, doing their job like Eisenhower. And he went from major to four-star general in a couple of years and ended up as the uh, as the supreme allied commander in Europe for the invasion of Europe and the, and the to the end of the war. Um, and that's why when he gave his speech in 1961, his departure speech before Congress, he, he outright warned about the problems with the uh, uh, the uh, you know the 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 you know the industrial the, the industrial complex um, and the uh, the problems that would have down the line. He was politic enough to know he didn't have to mention the congressional. You know, to the uh, to the military industrial complex. You know, it was understood by anybody in Congress who agreed with him, and he would have taken a lot of death breath if he hadn't. But one reason he was uh, he ran for president in '52 and won was because uh, people were really upset at how rapidly the the military had declined uh, up until the Korean War broke out and how unprepared we were, and people wanted answers. And, of course, the answer was, you know, a lot of those decisions were political. I mean, Truman, and I won't criticize him for this, but he was under tremendous pressure to end the war as quickly as possible. And when they brought out the nuclear, the A-bomb, and they said, you know, we used it. Some said, you know, this is going to be terrible. But somebody pointed out that it was no worse than the firestorm raids that General LeMay had come up with uh, to get at the Japanese um, uh, tendency to put a lot of small industries in cities, family industries. Sometimes you want know, a machine shop run out of the, the back of somebody's house. Um, and unless you basically obliterated cities, you were not going to you were not going to basically cripple uh, Japanese uh, aircraft and and weapons production in general. And as we saw in Saipan, the Japanese had been able to mobilize the civilian population to not only fight, but if they couldn't fight, to commit suicide. And there were pictures which became you know notorious as were well, of American troops trying to stop you know uh, Japanese uh, women and their children from jumping off cliffs rather than surrender to the enemy. Now I don't know what Hirohito thought about this. Uh, he did take, stick his neck out and risk a military coup again, or a, you know a, a complete military coup, not the one that that basically uh, hit you know after World War One that put the army Hirohito, uh, Hirohito uh, what do you call it? Uh, the army in China and the Navy basically you know, going along. Um, and uh, he said, you know, we got to surrender. Um, and they did. And that was the end of it. But, you know, uh, analysis, had, there were two kinds of analysis after the war. One was the fact that the war plan, even before the invasion, Operation Olympic was to take place, um, which several of my uncles would have been involved in, you know, up front, as it were, uh, was that uh, you know Japan was also already suffering enormously because we had thrown a naval blockade around Japan using a naval naval mines and submarines and air power, uh, and no no shipping was getting through, and that was that was critical uh, because Japan no longer produced all of its own food. So you know they were pointing out that if we if we if we didn't invade, the war would go on for another year. But the uh, millions of Japanese would die from starvation. Uh, and if we invaded, uh, there would be hundreds of thousands of Allied deaths, mostly American. But there would be millions of Japanese deaths based upon what had happened in Saipan. There was no reason to believe it was going to be any different. Uh, so there you have a situation where, where, uh, where politics, you know, Trump military uh, you know, strategy, the Japanese were totally out of control. And the Americans, you know, there were a lot of people counseled not to use the atomic bomb. It was it was terrible. Uh, that turned out to be wrong. It ended the war a lot more quickly than more firebomb raids because the Japanese had already braced themselves for firebomb raids. But when they saw one B-29 could drop one bomb and do as much damage as hundreds of uh, low-flying B-29s with incendiaries could do, uh, and they didn't know we only had two of them uh, ready to go, um, they said, you know, we can't fight this. Or he, he said that. Uh, a lot of the senior army people said, no, we can. We fight to the death. We are Japanese. <laughs> Hirohito turned out to be more Japanese than the generals because he, he made the announcement, again, which was touch and go because the, the army already had a plan in, in place uh, to um, – uh, to seize Hirohito and declare him temporarily insane or whatever. Anyway, that was that was halted. 
because you know here they still had loyal men, as it were, in the in the military leadership, especially in the navy. The navy, of course, was almost all gone by then, um, and and it ended. But we have similar situations, you know, now where we have the longest period of peacetime, you know, heavy military spending in the United States, and as we reported, you know, again back in the in the in the eighties, uh, that. There was more and more uh, corruption, as it were, of the upper ranks, you know, to basically follow um, instructions from Congress, not from their their military chain of command or from for military needs. And it meant that the uh, the senior leaders, I mean, the, this is a complaint that was made by by uh, junior officers, you know, captains, lieutenants, majors who were getting out instead of staying in. These these were the next generation of uh, of uh, senior combat commanders. They were getting out because they realized unless they wanted to face you know this this hellfire of paper bullets as they put them as, as this term came to be used, um, it just wasn't worth it. I mean, you know, they were there to fight an external enemy, not an internal one. And so the Air Force couldn't keep enough experienced pilots. The Army couldn't keep enough of experienced you know uh, uh, combat officers. Uh, uh, the Marines kept their people. Uh, they always had more than they needed because, because they never basically succumbed to this. The Marines were always known as troublesome, uh, you know, by Congress. Um, and we saw a lot of that in the news where, you know, uh, I think when Obama got in, there were a lot of people who basically were openly contemptuous of the Marines. They were basically openly afraid of them because the Marines failed, refused to play along. Um, now, what's happening now? Is that the, the the army still has a lot of these yes sir whatever you say sir generals to anything, but they have developed a system where uh, when they're hit with a real big you know uh, uh, damaging you know new uh, you know new um, uh, indoctrination, they just say yes sir yes sir and don't do it. And, and this is the only thing that's keeping the army from losing a lot of people because if it does get implemented widely, uh, you know that's the end of it. You know, you're going to lose your best people. Uh, the only people left are going to be the ones who will go along with any BS you throw at them. And that's not the kind of people who can win a war. And, uh, you know, the Marines might be the only ones left. And we'll only find that out if there is another war. And we'll find out the only troops we can depend on are the Marines who are, you know, le- less than, what, uh, 10% of the of the military. So there it is. It gets worse and worse. And there's no cure except for basically cutting back military spending. Uh, we already got rid of the draft um, and uh, and basically giving Congress less to uh, corrupt, less, uh, less, less, how should I put it, loot to fight over. Because that's a problem in all countries, uh, India, uh, to a lesser extent, China. But China still complains about it. I mean, they do so in their, in their uh, how should I put it, unclassified military journals which are now more quickly translated as English um, because that's the only way they get a wide – and the Russians did this too. That's the only way where they can get uh, more ideas from military people about how best to solve the problem, especially doing so without you know, offending the, uh, the desires of the, of the, of the, of the civilian uh, leadership. Of course, the Chinese army is unique in that – when you join the Chinese army, you do not take an oath to defend China. You take an oath to defend the Chinese Communist Party, which the Chinese have found is becoming more problematic because they are being hit with the uh, curse of affluence. Uh, they never really realize how bad this can be because the the uh, the population is starting to shrink, uh, and a lot of the uh, you know the the single children when the that period when they had the the one child policy for about almost thirty years, um, they uh, the a lot of these kids you know uh, join the army they have conscription but basically they rely on volunteers because they have such a large population. They started shrinking their army uh, to a Western-style army, you know, fewer troops, but, you know, better trained, better armed, and they are better armed now. In fact, there's been a problem when you get pictures of of, uh, of, of Chinese troops. If you're not careful, you'll mistake them for American, you know, Western troops because they wear the same kind of helmets. They have similar type weapons, um, and, uh, the, you know, the media has made faux pas in that a couple of times, um, but that's what's happening. The question is – Without solving the uh, you know the, the problem of uh, getting people, because after a while, 
the you know the the college education. Oh, by the way, in I think it was two thousand eight or nine, China decided that all their officers should be uh, university graduates. Big mistake, because that meant they were basically sidelining a lot of combat experience, good officers who maybe didn't have a university degree. But these were the kind of guys, you know, you wanted to hang on to for as long as possible. Remember, China hasn't fought a war since 79 against Vietnam, which they lost. They declared victory because they rolled over the Vietnamese and stopped short of going any further because they realized they'd just be losing more people. And and it would be more likely that the the details of their defeat would become known. It eventually did become known, but not at the time. Um, And that is something that lingers in the minds of the the Chinese. But the corruption hits everybody. And uh, we're probably just the biggest victim because we have the biggest military in the world and, and the highest portion of the military spending. In fact, worldwide, we're still spending 39% of all the money worldwide spent on the military. Chinese are closed again. They're up to 13%. So, Austin. Yeah. What do you think about Congress tinkering with the military? Well, I, I want to make a, a just a, it's a tangential comment, but uh, about Truman's decision on the bomb. Uh, it's it, uh, it, I've read this in at least two different uh, places. There were interviews with Truman after he was uh, no longer president, reflecting on on that decision, and, and he said there was no other choice as far as he was concerned. Uh, and one of them, and I think the book, Dan, is called uh, Harry Truman Speaks. It was uh, put together out of a series of uh, long interviews uh, with the uh, tape recorder running. And it was a tape recorder. And a tape recorder running when Harry Truman was going could be a dangerous experience. But uh, he said he, he could not face the families of uh, of soldiers who died in an attack on uh, the Japanese home islands. Uh, he looked at, he thought about Okinawa. He saw what he saw. Jim mentioned Saipan, but he saw the absolutely horrendous battles uh, on Okinawa. And when the Manhattan Project, he was briefed on it because he'd been in the dark. Uh, and then now he's president. He had some hints about the about the program of course he said he had no there was no choice and he was adamant about it uh he's i I see some revisionist historians try to discredit him but uh remember truman was a artilleryman in uh uh, world war one uh distinguished service as well he had a uh, artillery battery uh, mobilized uh, Missouri Nas- uh, National Guard, and he saw some pretty tight combat, very, uh, uh, very tough combat, right at the end of uh, of World War One. And uh, he just he he said, with the kind of uh, power it had, he 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 was going to use it and see what happened. You know, because before he expended the lives uh, of American servicemen, so. I just uh, and it was produced by the by the military industrial complex because the Manhattan Project was run by a military officer and uh, who had control over uh, all the all the resources in order to produce the uh, weapon. Well, look, one other point, Dan, before I get to your question, Jim talked about the military social program. Now, yes, it is. No, it isn't. The question is, is what kind of social programs? And I'll, I'll point to one. The military was one of the first uh, national institutions. Now, re- remember, Wilson reintroduced segregation into the federal government jobs. Woodrow Wilson did, progressive Democrat. But it was the military was one of the first, an army in particular, to uh, desegregate. And as Jim's written about this, I have a little bit, too, about how there were units that were effectively desegregated in operations in uh, World War II. But uh, starting in uh, really 49, 50, and by 51, uh, the, the Army was in the process of, of desegregation. My uh, 
my father's uh, uh, particular unit, uh, he was in the 25th uh, Infantry Division in, in Korea, was uh, his artillery uh, observation section that he, he commanded was one of the first uh, unit, you know, how those uh, artillery uh, uh, observation uh, sections I think he had about 20, uh, 20 men uh, in it. It was one of the first uh, uh, groups in uh, the division artillery to uh, desegregate. And it was a social program. And then suddenly one of the artillery battalions had a new third battery that had been a quote-unquote colored artillery battery. And then within a short time, it was a desegregated artillery battalion. Uh, and that was occurring in uh, the fall of 1951 uh, in a de deployed unit. Social program? Absolutely. Problems? I, I, my father told me at least two dozen times, next to none. So <laughs> part of it is, as uh, Jim said in, in, in a and Al and a couple of other uh, talks, is that everybody in that, that situation realizes we all bleed red blood. Well, so there's that <clears throat> factor and that kind of uh, socialization. The issue that we face here, and it's here, we're, I'm going to start moving into answering your question about Congress and politicians having their fingers in it, are in favored little social programs. And uh, I'm sorry, I know where uh, critical race theory comes from. You hear people talking about the Frankfurt School and, and Marxist uh, economic theory. Some of the roots of this are actually in uh, Marxist-influenced literary theory. You can see it from the 1950s and 1960s in, uh, in uh, uh, Western Europe, where – yeah, and the, the whole thrust of it is is that words words mean nothing. It's just power. Everything's power. You know, there was sorry the Greeks uh, uh, rhetoricians had dealt with nihilism before, but it's like they had just gone and invented nihilism. And of course, what it was is a way to, uh, to say, "I'm sorry, the meaning of this document doesn't mean what you think it says. It was imposed on you by X, Y, Z, and." Uh, I'm sorry, this poem really isn't about a beautiful um, a beautiful woman or a nice, nice day. It's about trying to impose a value from the structure, controlling power, whatever. And that's the way they would run the uh, their literary criticism. And you can see that played out through it, uh, in what became critical theory in, in law schools. It's all about power and uh, <clears throat> what – I'm sorry, uh, history is all you – know, history begins now. See, that's the other other uh, switcheroo in it. And I, I can't help but see that this is divisive, in, uh, particularly in the military units where you rely on your fellow uh, soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen. You're a group. You're a unit. You're mutually dependent. And this is being imposed – uh, you know, right now, where Department of Education, Biden administration, <clears throat> understand that it's been <clears throat> in um, academia, uh, what I'll, I'll say, call so-called progressive left-wing elitist academia, in well, the literary theory and the economic wing of it for 40, 45, 50 years. But uh, certainly started gaining uh, uh, influence I, I, too much, I think, about 20 years ago. And now you're seeing it imposed on the military here. And it's, it's just the opposite of uh, Martin Luther King, uh, be judged by your character individually. In other words, a, a, uh, having the United States live up to the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and not lumping us into groups and judging us on, uh, in, in groups. It's individuals, individual rights, you know, uh, and the, the 
the way, part of the Marxist component of this is, is is to create a kind of tribalism where there's always the good tribe and the bad tribe, the proletariat versus the capitalists. And now you can see how CRT uh, is racist and tribalist it's, itself, but power enough to impose it. And I think it's uh, I've, I've 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 written that that it's uh, a real uh, issue. And yet I noticed, noted that the military had been uh, a, a, a used as a uh, means of desegregation. Uh, there were, and you look back to some things that were going on during the war, uh, that there were uh, uh, individuals who uh, saw this as an opportunity to uh, end an injustice. That was uh, that was uh, it was consciously discussed, including by some uh, senior officers who happen to be white, <laughs> predominantly, uh, on this, saying uh, we can do this. And they were they received support across the board in parts of Congress. Remember, the Republicans, the abolitionist party, the real abolitionist party, and in the uh, 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 Roosevelt administration. Now, let's go on to where Jim was talking about uh, <coughs> the costs. I'm going to bring up Hyman Rickover. Remember Hyman Rickover, the nuclear navy? One of the most important uh, admirals we've had. In the last, and we've had a bunch of them in the last 100, 100 uh, 120 years. Uh, great deal of prescience, great deal of foresight, and uh, he was politically savvy if there ever was uh, a military officer. Uh, so was Eisenhower. But uh, Rickover <clears throat> was noted for telling his his staff when he when he hired them. When he hired somebody or you know, brought brought uh, a, a new uh, naval officer or civilian uh, tech, technical advisor into in his staff, he said, "Look, Congress is only going to fund one ship. It might fund two ships. So when you put together the proposal, you build the best ship." Design it, and don't worry about the cost. They'll fund that one ship. Now, you can see the logic behind that. Of course, he's, he's building up nuclear, a nuclear navy, submarines, and then uh, uh, surface ships as well. And, but he says he was playing to what he's, uh, he, he said was, that's the way that uh, the – Congressional committees will look at it. Uh, we're only going to do one because we're going to need to be responsive. So we're going to build something that's as, as, as multi-capable uh, as we can do it. There's nothing wrong with what Rickover wanted to do. But here is what happens over time. Uh, Jim sketched this. I don't know how many. I know we've really only got two, or depending on how you call it, two and a half uh, companies that are building major uh, naval uh, naval vessel, vessels. It's, uh, but there's work on those naval vessels that spreads to, let's see, uh, easily six, seven, eight of the largest. Uh, weapons and uh, communications uh, manufacturers in, in the United in the United States same thing tends to happen with expensive aircraft uh, aircraft, aircraft programs and Congress uh, congressional representatives want to see their uh, their uh, a section that you know, their uh, uh, their district get a fair share of the work. That's because the interest okay, and what happens is is that 
it begins to add X percent to the cost of weapons programs and production costs and is spread out. Jim already talked about this. You know, all the lobbyists saying we can't cut this and we can't cut, uh, cut that. And so lost in the process or disappearing in the process is a substantial portion of the budget money that's not going to produce going uh, to, towards producing new and usable weapons is it a problem i've just described is there anything wrong with uh, a congressional representative wanting uh, uh business in his or her district no there's nothing wrong with it but it becomes a, a type of you know um uh, systemic corruption and i'm making fun of you know critical race theory there to some degree but it is it's not it's not exactly corrupt but it is not uh productive and it's it comes back now we started off talking about uh eisenhower's uh, goodbye speech in uh, what was it 1961 61 yeah yeah, 61. That's what he delivered it. Wasn't it just before he was, uh, he left yes. office? It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's farewell address to Congress. No, oh, yeah, that's it. Um, is that, uh, he saw it firsthand. And it produced amazing things. The Manhattan Project was military, industrial, congressional, as Jim says, political, American, at, at its finest. It was also in the middle of a, of a war. But look how what, what it's it, it's it, it's become. It's uh, it is a problem, Dan, and it's a problem. And as you look at it, and, and from several aspects, and well, gee, is there a way to do it better? And you know, Jim, you said there wasn't a cure, but I, I'm going to say there is a cure, but I don't think it'll happen. And that is, you elect representatives and senators who are aware of this and say we're not going. To, to let the behemoth command us. We're going to command the behemoth. And don't say, Austin, you'd be too idealistic. But that is, you're probably right, but that, uh, that is the, uh, that is what Ike was warning us about. And now we've got it, Dan. Do you disagree with that, Jim? No, you had a certain amount of it even during World War II where they had to make decisions on where to put a lot of the new military bases they were, uh, uh, they were setting up. And a lot of them basically they had, they could place it, you know, put it several different places, but they ended up putting them in areas that were most politically expedient, as it were. That's why a lot of new army bases ended up in the south, because the south was still, you know, smarting, as it were, uh, from the, uh, the Civil War. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Southern Democrats were uh, obstreperous, as we saw during the, uh, uh, the the uh, civil rights you know movement in the 60s. Um, you know one of the big advantages Johnson had when after Kennedy was assassinated was that he was vice president. But main reason he was vice president was he was quite the operator in Congress in the House of Representatives. Now that he was president, he could basically had the authority to call whoever he wanted into his office and have one of his famous chats. Um, and uh, he usually got his way, but he mainly had to use that. He had no problem with the Republicans. They agreed with what he was trying to do. Uh, but what put a lot of those, uh, 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 you know, civil rights uh, programs into law was the fact that he was able to bring enough uh, Democrats who would normally not vote for this sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and how the Republicans lost that, you know, uh, that moral edge is, is a story for another time. But the Democrats realized they were in trouble, uh, with that, that traditional, you know, Southern, um, attitude, that Democratic attitude. Because remember, it was the Democrats <laughs> who, uh, basically were responsible. At the time of the Civil War, you had, you had the, the Democratic Party was the first party. And uh, first organized American political party, and that was Jackson, uh, who was the game, famous guy who tried to who deported all the Indians, the Trail of Tears, because they, the people, voters wanted the real estate. The Indians didn't get the vote until 1924, um, and uh, the you know the uh, the Democrats basically uh, used their political clout. Uh, to get um, uh, the Reconstruction ended in 76 by basically throwing the, in a contested presidential election, throwing their weight behind the, uh, the, the Republican candidate. 
And so the candidates say, well, all right, you know, what the hell, you know, we did what we could with the reconstruction while well, they hadn't. And of course, out of that came all the Democrats, the Democrats were back in power. And you had all these Democratic, uh, uh, you know, militias, as it were. The Ku Klux Klan was the most famous one because they were the most colorful, but there were lots of others. Uh, a lot of them were just local, like the one in Tulsa and various other southern towns, which had this huge, uh, you know, basically uprising uh, that destroyed the, the black middle class um, in many cities and didn't get much publicity at the time. Uh, and, of course, uh, Wilson uh, was the first, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, northern Democrat uh, who was elected president, and the, one of the first things he did not only did he, he, he was from Virginia civil service, he, I know why he was from Virginia, from Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, he was the first southern Democrat to be elected president, and of course he didn't just he didn't just segregate uh, the uh, the civil service. Uh, but he segregated the Navy, which had never been segregated. You know, for all of America's history, the, the Navy had been integrated because, hey, in the Navy, especially in the days where sailing, sailing ships were very dangerous places to be, you basically went on, you know, talent. And you didn't care what flavor the talent came in, Indian, you know, uh, African-American, you name it. If you had if you had the the, the, the qualities that would keep the ship afloat <laughs> in, in peacetime, it would work in wartime and you didn't want to lose those guys. And, and of course, what the Navy was really hacked off. I mean, there were a lot of southern officers who were, you know, you know, had mixed feelings about the, the segregation. But what really hacked them off was losing so many black chiefs. The chief petty officers really, you know, operated the ships. And they lost a lot of, you know, very competent, you know, black um, uh, CPOs, forcibly retired because all of them had the time in, as it were. Um, and a lot of people in the Navy never got over that. Um, and, uh, and of course, as I found out in the 50s, I met a guy who had uh, who had basically uh, been drafted. In, well, he joined the Navy in the, in the uh, right at the tail end of the uh, before the Navy became fully desegregated again. And it was when the the, the uh, black sailors could only be, uh, you know, um, uh, basically, uh, you know, service uh, guys for the officers. And he found out that they had created their own little secret power center because they had access to the best food on the ship. And they could basically, you know, hand that out to whoever they wanted uh, once the officers were taken care of uh, to get whatever they wanted. And this guy, uh, this new new guy who became a, later became a judge, um, he... Uh, <laughs> he was a he was a radar repairman, and uh, he was getting a hard time because that was that was a, that was a, that was a rating that you know Blanche had not been in, uh, you know before the Navy was they probably didn't exist when they segregated the Navy in, in uh, well it didn't exist in uh, in uh, in the in the in the day that in the was it 2014 2012 uh, 2012 I mean 1912 whenever you know Wilson got in and. But uh, he he basically got chummy. Well, they came to him because they they were proud. They finally they wanted the, they, they blacks could do a job that they knew they had guys who were you know uh, you know uh, working these these service jobs, uh, but they couldn't get them. Uh, and they took care of him. You know they they come to him and say, hey, you want some steak? Officer having steak today. We'll slip you one. And um, and he he discovered that they had their own little power structure going. And of course that disappeared because then they, at that point the uh, black sailors could apply for any job and eventually they became you know officers and you name it. But uh, those are things that happen in the military when you apply this this basically uh, unnatural social engineering. Uh, it has impact. It has effects that basically don't get much publicity. Uh, because the government doesn't like to admit it made mistakes. Uh, and Truman, as you pointed out, uh, gets credit because he basically said, the hell with this. This isn't working. Um, he, in World War One, uh, he found out, you know, there were, there, were, there, were, there were a lot of black Americans who were fighting in the infantry, but they were doing it for France because that was the compromise we made. We're not going to have all black, you know, infantry units uh, or divisions uh, you know, showing what they can do because that means they'll come back after the war and be all uppity and, and troublesome and what have you. Uh, and that's exactly what happened after World War II, uh, which is why the civil rights movement in the 60s was different because you had a lot of white former, you know, World War II um, veterans down south who basically came out and said, you know, now I can openly say, you know, what I saw. 
because right after the war, they were suspect because they had they had were known in many cases to have served in units that had that were informally, as Austin put it, informally integrated. And even the Marines. And there was one Marine general, God, I forget his name. He basically, during the war, he said, you know, blacks aren't suitable, you know, to be Marines. But they had to basically uh, allow uh, black Marines doing service jobs into combat units because they were running short of men towards the end. And at the end of the war, he said, I was wrong. That's what the Marines will do. <laughs> and the senior and Marine generals say that we're wrong. They make very good Marines. So he says, now we have, you know, we have light green and dark green Marines. They're all Marines. And from there on in, you know, the Marines now had their, had their problems with, uh, you know, desegregation. Um, the Army had similar experiences because they, they basically uh, uh, had no compunctions about, you know, uh, transferring uh, the black service troops uh, from engineering or quartermaster or transportation units to combat units because they found out they had plenty of volunteers and they needed them. And when they got into the front lines, they served quite well, as expected. I mean, the old timers, you know, uh, remembered their Civil War history uh, where you had the black units. In fact, even during the Revolutionary War, uh, you had the first, you know, uh, crisis over the uh, the racial problem, which the, the, the South basically monopolized. Uh, they refused to uh, to fight alongside uh, black troops. Now, the the uh, the Revolutionary War units from the New England states were integrated, um, and and this was abhorred. So Washington had to dance very carefully around this. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, covertly, you know, a lot of uh, Revolutionary War units would, you know, bring guys in and just, you know, say, what? No blacks here. He's an Indian, you know, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, you know, they got away with it. But in peacetime, you know, there's there's nothing you know, there's nothing to hide behind, as it were. Uh, and and the uh, and the segregation came back. He only had a few segregated regiments, you know, the two infantry regiments and uh, two cavalry regiments in the West. Again, which distinguished themselves. Um, but the uh, again, the white officers knew, you know, if if word got out, which it eventually did, uh, this was the end. I mean, another thing that that really got covered up by history by by Hollywood was that the cowboys were always depicted as white guys. In fact, half of them were Hispanic or, 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 or blacks, uh, but this didn't photograph well, apparently, as far as Hollywood is concerned. Some of, them doing Indians. Some of them are Indians, man. That's the other exactly, side. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, they, they, would, they would publicize the, uh, the, the Indian scouts, but yes, some of the, some of the troops. Cowboy. You I'm know, talking about uh, cowboys. For example, my, cowboys yeah. I, oh, cowboys, yeah. And, but the thing is, you know, like some of my – uh, uh, Lenape ancestors. My great great grandmother married a Civil War veteran, uh, and uh, and I, I you know I made inquiries when I was young I, when I learned about Jackson. He says, well, you know, I found out the deal was if you didn't own property, if you were Lenape that didn't own property, and a lot of them like to hang out to property. A lot of them were not living on there were no reservations, but they owned property and they farmed it and they dressed like whites. They act, they talk, spoke English. Uh, you know, the, the, the happy language didn't, didn't die out until late in the 19th century. I mean, it's still around, but I mean, it was, you know, uh, uh, my great great grandmother could speak it. And uh, I think until my, well, anyway, until the late 19th century, you know, you, you didn't hear it. But they basically uh, uh, invoked the old medieval rule for serfs. If you got to a city and stayed there for a year and a day, you were freed. <laughs> And that was an informal rule that was generally recognized. And the Lenape basically, and a lot of Indians in, in uh, different parts of the country, especially in the east, uh, they got away with that because, in my case, the uh, they were the Canarsie of the Lenape, and uh, a lot of them didn't get removed by the Jackson, you know, removal edict because you couldn't find them. They weren't living together. They didn't own property. They were living in towns, uh, mostly in uh, what is now Brooklyn and Queens, and. Um, uh, you know, they basically said, "Well, not Indians, you know, we're Portuguese." Or if it was summertime and everybody darkened up, they said, "You know, oh, we're uh, we're freedmen." Um, and uh, so, with a little guile, you could survive it. But again, most of them are still out there. Most of the, the recognized Lenape tribes that still exist are out in the Midwest. Uh, they shared reservations with the with the uh, with larger tribes that were already out there that were that were con- concentrated in reservations. So this is a long time problem. Um, and it always backfires, you know, because, you know, Martin Luther King was correct. It's the con- content of your quarter, quarter you know, the, your, your character, you know, not, not the color of your skin. 
and that's something people found out, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially um, uh, late in the 20th century when it was noticed that a lot of, uh, you know, prominent engineers and, and, and scientists and what have you had just snuck in there. They'd gone to college, they'd gotten uh, STEM degrees, you know, science, engineering, math and technology, uh, and they did very well. And basically, it kept quiet. In fact, one thing you don't hear about uh, in the uh, in this argument over over race in, in America is that the uh, the the black blacks economically made tremendous strides uh, after after the '60s uh, with with better access to education and what have you. But and a lot of them who made it basically kept quiet because they realized that. If they don't know we're here, they won't come after us. And so you had this basically, uh, you know, for safety's sake, you know, we're not going to basically, uh, you know, broadcast what we're doing. But you saw a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, suburbs and uh, around like even Washington, D.C. Uh, and New York City and other major cities, which were full of, you know, college educated, professional, you know, African-Americans. And uh, they were not rioting. They were not, you know, basically agitating Congress to give them reparations or anything like that, uh, because they basically done, you know, Martin Luther King suggested um, and many other, you know, uh, prominent, uh, you know, African-American scientists in the 19th century. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, they Politicians got to do what politicians do, what they did to the Irish and every immigrant group that came in, like the Africans came up in mass, you know, after the Civil War, as if they were coming from a foreign country, which in many respects they were, uh, into the North. And uh, they moved into cities and politicians, white, first white, then black, uh, basically organized them. He says, well, you got to say, you know, your victims, you, you need this, you need that. What happened was any any like happened in the 60s with the, uh, you know, the welfare programs, uh, which were finally, you know, uh, how should I put it, you know, uh, repealed in the in the 90s by um, by Democrats uh, 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 because everybody realized this was not working. Uh, was they uh, basically said, you know, uh, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to provide schools and and what have you. Uh, that's why a lot of uh, uh, you know educated blacks move to the suburbs where they can control the schools and they maintain the quality of the schools and what have you. Uh, uh, they basically want to keep you have somebody there who will basically uh, vote uh, no matter what. Uh, for, you know, urban politicians. Again, this is something that goes way back from especially one of the great first waves of mass immigration, first the Irish and the Italians and, and the Jews uh, and what have you. And then, of course, after uh, after the uh, after especially in World War One, especially in World War One, you had a lot of immigration from the uh, the South. Uh, basically, they filled jobs that there was nobody else available for. Uh, and they wanted to hang on to those jobs, and, and a lot of them did, and their kids went to college and what have you. But uh, they didn't become a, how should I put it, a political movement uh, for the, the for a lot of the blacks. Uh, I mean, the NAACP ostensibly did that, uh, but they basically became captive to the, uh, the demagogic uh, urban politicians who were not interested in, in the goals, the, the stated goals of the NAACP. They were occupied in, in keeping voters that they could control, you know, in the in the urban cities. Uh, and this is a problem nobody wants to talk about. Right. Uh, because so, it's, it's political poison. So Jim, Jim and Austin were were out of time. And uh, so it's uh, time to wrap this up. Uh, and we'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs> talk to you later, Dan. Bye. Bye. Bye.